Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, but the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, to make sure you're in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit, ready to concentrate and focus on the teaching of the Word this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we do indeed thank you this morning for this privilege and opportunity to gather together to fellowship around the teaching of your word. We thank you for the nation in which we live, for the freedoms we have, for those who have purchased that freedom over the previous two-plus centuries. Father, we pray that uh, you would continue to provide for us and protect us as a nation. We know that ultimately our security is not dependent on our armed forces, on our intelligence services, but it is dependent upon your grace. Father, we pray that you would continue to support this nation, continue to protect us, continue to protect us from the those who would destroy us, these ter- enemies of terrorism. Father, we pray that you would continue to give us opportunities to send out missionaries and to support Israel. Father, we pray for us that we might be responsive to the challenge of your word, that we might not take lightly the teaching of your word, that we might realize how important this is. This is the highest form of worship. The most important thing that we can engage in is to spend our time learning what you have to say to us and learning how to think biblically. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and this morning we get into the subject we have been leading up to for some three or four months, and that is the spiritual gifts themselves. We get into our second list. We did get into a list earlier in chapter 12, and that was back in verses 8 through 10 where we had a list of temporary gifts. Here we have a list of both temporary and permanent gifts. But before we get into the gifts proper, there's one thing I want to note by way of introduction. That is that these gifts are, as I've said again and again, spiritual enhancements or capacities provided to every believer at the instant of salvation that are developed through spiritual growth. They are not a means to spiritual growth. They are the, Their manifestation will occur as you grow spiritually. But 
the spiritual gifts are and these responsibilities are truly mandated toward every believer. So one of the things I wanted to point out comes out of Romans 12. And this morning, because of the parallel content between Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, you might hold your place in Romans, I mean in 1 Corinthians 12, flip over to Romans 12 for just a minute. And we will not flip back and forth too much, but we will see some parallels between these two passages. It's interesting that whenever Paul addresses the subject of spiritual gifts, whether it's in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, or even briefly in Romans, I mean, excuse me, in Ephesians 4, he always brings out the same themes. And those themes include the unity of the body, the oneness of the body, and love for one another. Those ideas are present in the content, I mean, in the context of each of these chapters. Now, watch how Paul introduces the subject of spiritual gifts in chapter 12, verse 3. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now, that addresses the issue of arrogance. Now, it's not just arrogance separated out in some sort of isolated manner, but because of where he goes in the next few verses, we know that he's talking in the realm of whatever spiritual gift, capacity, or enhancement you might have, not to blow that out of proportion and think you're somebody because you have a particular spiritual gift. And, of course, we saw that that's a problem in the church at Corinth and is a problem today in some churches. And especially in Pentecostal charismatic theology, they've taken certain gifts such as the gift of tongues or miracles or prophecy, which are all temporary gifts and no longer in effect today, but they have, uh, they teach that they are in effect today and they've blown them out of proportion. So Paul's first point is to think not soberly, we think of sobriety in terms of alcohol consumption, but the term in the Greek has to do with objective thinking, accurate thinking based on doctrine. Think accurately, objectively, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, now doesn't that sound like that came right out of 1 Corinthians 12? Many members in one body, the emphasis on the individuals, but not at the exclusion of the unity of the body. We have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So everybody has a different role to play, and every role is important to the health of the whole. And then in verse 5, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And that's the key word there, that phrase, members of one another. Whatever we do when we talk about spiritual gifts and individual capacities and enhancements, the key concept is expressed by this phrase, we are members of one another. Members of one another, and this is the Greek word, alelone, A-L-L-E-L-O-N, and it has that idea of being part of one another's life. There is an interrelationship of believers because of the common 
reality of being baptized by means of the body of Christ, and I mean by means of the Holy Spirit, into the body of Christ. Now, I want to note several passages that use this term alone because it emphasizes that mutual ministry that is to characterize the body of Christ. And this mutual ministry is often related to the functions of spiritual gifts, whether the spiritual gift is present or not. And what I mean by that is, again, emphasizing that every believer has responsibilities in each of the areas where there are spiritual gifts, even if that is not your spiritual gift. So let's look at a couple of passages. Uh, In the passage we're in, in Romans 12, Look down at verse 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and the in honor giving preference to one another. Twice in that verse we have the idea of one another, but the emphasis is on the priority of impersonal love for all mankind, and it emphasizes the idea of, of compassion and gentleness and care for one another, even if you don't know the other person. That's why we call it impersonal love is because it's not necessary to know who the other person is, not necessary to base that uh, on their uh, some attractive quality in that particular individual. We're to have brotherly love, and the word there uh, emphasizes is care for other believers. Romans 12, verse 10. Then turn over just a couple of pages, a couple of chapters, to Romans 15, verse 14. Romans 15, verse 14. And as Paul begins to close out the epistle to the Romans, he says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. And here we have a phrase addressed to the whole congregation, not to specifically gifted people in the congregation or to leaders. And he says we are to admonish one another. And this is the Greek verb, nutheteo, N-O-U-T-H-E-T-E-O. And the root is in these, you can see in these first three letters, and that's from the Greek root, nous, N-O-U-S, which is normally translated mind or thought. And it has to do with challenging the thinking of someone, not in a hostile manner, but in the sense that if you have a relationship with someone, then, and you see them getting into some sort of trap, then you use the doctrine in your soul in the context of that care for one another to challenge them with the truth, to teach them the truth, to encourage them with the truth. Now, let I always have to caution this because you always have some people who are just uh, butting into other people's business and they want to straighten everybody else out and they think that they're God's answer to everybody else's problems. And that's not the context. All of us have different circles of influence. So when it comes to this concept of all alone and one another, we have to understand that in life we have different levels of intimacy with people. You have uh, yourself and your immediate family. 
And then there are other levels where you may have some very close friends. And then there's a further level out where you have acquaintances and business associates that you spend a lot of time with. And then there are, as you go further out on that circle, you have people in the congregation you know, and maybe you've known them for a long time, but you wouldn't say that you're very intimate with them or you know them very closely. So this concept of one another, you have to use some common sense in terms of what kind of relationship you have with somebody. You don't just think that because you know somebody or you see somebody in the church and you see them doing something, that necessarily gives you the right to just go over and try to straighten them out. And that's happened a couple of times around here, and there have been a couple of cases that have been brought to my attention, and it just shouldn't take place. You, you haven't established the context of a relationship, and it comes across as nothing more than arrogance, and usually what happens is you just see something, jump to some conclusion about something in somebody's life, and you don't know any of the facts, you don't know any of the context, you don't know anything that's going on in that person's life, and you make a boatload of assumptions that are usually uh, completely erroneous, and then you think you're being helpful to that person, encouraging them spiritually, and all you're doing is aggravating them and creating antagonism. So the idea of one anothering really has to be understood in terms of the context of what kind of relationship that person has allowed you to have with them. See, we, we talk a lot around here about the doctrine of privacy, and privacy is an important principle. Privacy and the concept of private property is foundational to all law and to all freedom. But privacy is also related to freedom in terms of your own freedom to succeed or freedom to fail in the spiritual life. And we have to give people privacy. And everybody has a right to privacy. But what happens is as soon as you get involved in any kind of a relationship with somebody, you're giving up some of that privacy. Now, there are some folks who are very private individuals just by nature of their own, uh, their own personality. And there are folks who will come to church, and all they want to do is sit back in the back. They don't want anybody to notice them. They don't want anybody to say hi to them. They just want to come in, sit down, listen to the teaching of the Word, and then leave without any muss or fuss. And we have to respect people like that. That's a problem you get into in so many of these silly superficial activities in some churches where they say, oh, stand up and hug somebody. Uh, go across the aisle, look for somebody new, and, and get walk over there and tell them you love them. And that comes across as silly and superficial. And I've seen it practiced in a lot of churches. And uh, it, it just... There's a lack of reality there because there are some folks, and it makes some people extremely uncomfortable, and it forces them into a certain kind of of one-dimensional framework of, of people. Everybody ought to be a certain way, and people are different. And then you have on the other end of the scale, you have people who are outgoing and gregarious, and they want to meet everybody and see everybody, and they have to recognize, too, that there are some folks who don't want to be met or seen. So we have to be somewhat sensitive to different people's personalities. But if you get involved in a congregation and you come in and you introduce yourself to people, then the more people you introduce yourself to, the more people you get to know and talk to, the more you're giving up your right to privacy. So if you get involved with people to a certain level of intimacy, 
And then that person says, well, you know, there's something that, that maybe you ought to pay attention to in your life, and you get offended. You don't have a right to get offended because you're the one who, who gave up the privacy to begin with by entering into a friendship. Because that's one thing that friends do. Friends will point out in a kind, loving, caring, non-confrontational context there, that there are things sometimes that we need to straighten out. But that is based on a relationship of trust and intimacy that's been established already. It's not just somebody coming in out of left field wanting to give good advice because they figured out the solution to all your problems. Usually people like that need to spend some time looking at their own problems. But it's clear from the Scripture that there is a mutual ministry here. We're not treated as individual islands of, of private individuals who just come in, sit down, take in the Word, and go home. There is a mutual ministry here that is part of the spiritual life. So Paul tells the congregation in Rome that you are able also to admonish one another, and that's because they have a framework of doctrine that gives you objectivity. And this would only apply to somebody who has spent some time in spiritual growth and has reached spiritual maturity because that is the only time you're going to have the real objectivity and sensitivity to know when, when and what to say to somebody. It usually happens as some some brand-new baby believer or some adolescent believer who thinks he knows more than he does gets a little bit overexcited about this. So Romans 15, 14 talks about admonishing one another. Then if we turn over a few, uh, few books to Galatians, in Galatians 5, 13, we have another command. Ephesians 5.13, the command is to serve one another. I'm in Galatians 5.13, but I have five, um, have obviously mistyped my reference. But in Galatians 5, we are to serve one another. And the Greek word there is duleo, which is from the word uh, to serve or to be a slave and to, to serve one another. Let's look at verse, just at the opening section, verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. There's the same idea there. So fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, well, each and then verse 5, each one shall bear his own load. I have somehow mistyped this reference, so we'll just skip it and move to the next one. Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another by means of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. So here we have a command. First of all, no doctrine. Let the word of Christ richly dwell 
in you with all wisdom. And then one result of that is teaching and admonishing one another. Now, that's not related to simply those who are, have the gift of teaching. So we are to teach and admonish one another, and this is done in the privacy of personal relationships. We do that all the time. We admonish one another. We teach one another. We remind one another of certain doctrines as we're going through life, and we run into certain situations and circumstances. So we are to teach one another, Colossians 3.16. Then we get to another passage. And another spiritual gift concept in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, and incidentally, Colossians 3, didasco is the verb there for teaching, which is the same word used for a spiritual gift in 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And the word that is translated comfort in 1 Thessalonians 4.18 is the Greek verb para-kaleo, P-A-R-A-K-A-L-E-O. And para-kaleo is related to the noun parakletos. which is where we get the transliteration, which it shouldn't be transliterated, but the transliteration, paraclete, for the Holy Spirit. He is the one who comes alongside, literally, or is called alongside. Sometimes it's translated comforter. Sometimes it's translated uh, encourager. But this is a title for what the Holy Spirit does. But here we see that this is commanded of every believer to comfort one another. And the context there indicates that uh, parakaleo should be translated comfort because it has to do with a time of grief when people have lost a loved one in death and they have gone to be with the Lord. And so there is comfort by, based on doctrine. So we get an idea of what it means to, uh, ex- this is usually translated exhort, but it has different nuances to it. And I think the primary idea has to do more with the idea of comfort or encouragement at a time of crisis than exhortation. Exhortation has that idea of coming across and, and uh, straightening somebody out sometimes or, or just uh, giving them a uh, talking to, whereas this has more the idea of encouraging someone in a time of of difficulty, and the context, of course, of First Thessalonians four, is that the Thessalonians were had questioned Paul because he had taught about the uh, return of the Lord, and all of a sudden they're having some of their loved ones die, and the Lord hasn't come back yet, so they want to know what's going to happen to them, and so he explains that to them that that uh, they only sleep. It's temporary. They're actually, they're absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord. Sleep is just a euphemism for the fact that they are, are now absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. Their body's in the grave, but they are face-to-face with the Lord. And in verse 14, we read, Paul saying, uh, or go to verse 13, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope, no confidence. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, we get content to what it means to comfort or encourage one another. It's going to doctrine and helping somebody who's going through some difficulty see how to apply that doctrine in their life. And that's done in terms of a a already existing personal relationship. When you're talking with your friends or family members, somebody's going through some test, and you're able to point out how doctrine can be implied there and encourage them with that. So that's one example of what it means to encourage or the verb parakaleo. Another example of that same verb is found in Hebrews 3.13 as well as Hebrews 10.25. So let's skip over to Hebrews 3.13, and we'll pick up a slightly different uh, nuance here. Hebrews 3.13. And here the context is a warning to the believers that are being addressed in Hebrews who are on the verge of rejecting the Christian life and going back into Judaism. They're on the verge of reversionism. And the writer says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, that is, going back to your former manner of life rather than staying with the Christian life. And then he he writes, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, encourage one another. When you hit crisis or there's a, uh, whether it's a personal crisis or whether you have been challenged in a crisis of your understanding of the truth of Scripture, uh, one solution is that we receive encouragement based on doctrine from other believers. That means to in order to fulfill this, you have to have some doctrine in your soul so you can use that to encourage someone who is in a position of crisis. Let's skip over to Hebrews 10.25 for a further example of this concept. Hebrews 10.25. And we read in verse, uh, let's start at verse 24 to pick up the context. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. When the the one another is picked up there, you see it in italics in verse 25 because it's picked up from as the object in verse 24. So it does apply to this this, uh, verb and because... Uh, it's so far removed in the in the Greek. It's clear, but in the English, you have to put it in there again for it to make better sense in the translation. So we're to encourage one another, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, and that has to do with with Christians meeting at the very least in Christian assembly as a local church, and also in terms of 
friendships and relationships, and part of the responsibility in a Christian friendship has to do with being able to encourage another believer with doctrine when they're going through times of difficulty. And then, and just to wrap up this opening uh, introduction this morning, 1 Peter 4.10. 1 Peter 4, verse 10. There are several uses of the term one another here in these verses. For example, in verse 8, above all things, have fervent love for one another. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another. And we covered the doctrine of hospitality in our study of 3 John. And then in verse 10, as each one has received a gift. So this is applying it now to your spiritual gift. As each one has received a gift. Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. In other words, the purpose for that spiritual gift is for the benefit of the body of Christ. Every spiritual gift is given primarily to serve the body of Christ, not outside the body of Christ. Somebody says, well, what about witnessing, evangelism? Well, as we'll see when we look at Ephesians 4, the person with the gift of evangelist, the men, anyway, with the gift of evangelist, are given that gift to train or equip the saints for the work of ministry. The primary function of the gift of evangelist is not just to witness, but it's to train other believers to witness because other believers may not have that gift of witnessing, the gift of evangelism, and they need to be trained so that they can be more effective in their evangelism and in their witnessing. So the purpose of the gift of evangelism is not simply to witness, but to train other believers to witness. And then the function of witnessing itself is a secondary but a very important feature of that gift. Now let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and pick up where we left off last Sunday morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 25, we pick up this same idea of one another. That there should be no schism in the body, that is, no, no division based on arrogance, but that members should have the same care for one another. So once again, there is this mutual ministry in the body of Christ. Christians are not just a bunch of individuals floating out there in isolation from other believers. We are all part of the body of Christ, and we're to encourage and care for one another. Verse 26, Paul expands on that idea. He says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Now, you may not realize that, but if there is a missionary over in uh, India or in Africa, and they're going through some sort of crisis, that affects the whole body of Christ. Remember, we're working together in unity in the body of Christ in relationship to the angelic conflict. That's why we're to pray for one another. That doesn't mean that in your day-to-day life 
you're going to, as soon as something happens to him over in Africa, that it's going to, that you're going to feel something, or there's not like what you see in the Star Wars movies, there's a tremor in the force or anything like that, but it affects the whole body of Christ. So as one person suffers, everyone suffers with it. As one member is honored, so all the members rejoice with him because there is this legitimate, objective care and love for one another. Impersonal love for one another based on our unity in Christ. Then Paul reminds them of the principle again in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. So now we're going to look at the operation of the individual members. He constantly goes back and forth between the unity of the body and the function of the individuals within that body. And in verse 28, we see that there is a listing of spiritual gifts, and they are listed, at least the first three are ranked in terms of priority. The other gifts are not prioritized, but the first three gifts are ranked in terms of priority. And we read here, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that, and this is where, from this point on, they're just mixed together with no indication of importance. After that, miracles, then healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. And then in verse 29, we'll come back and look at each one in just a minute. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? No, the way the questions are framed in the Greek is to indicate a negative answer. Is everyone an apostle? No. That goes back to his earlier illustration of the body, that just as the physical body has many different parts and organs and each one has a function, if the whole body was an ear or the whole body were an eye, then it would not be functional. So there are differences. Not everyone is called to be an apostle. Not everyone is given the gift of prophet prophecy. Not everyone is a teacher. Not everyone is a worker of miracles. And he continues in verse 30. Do all have the gift of healings? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. You see, the point in those verses is not everyone is going to have these gifts. That flies directly in the face of Pentecostal theology, which expects every believer to speak in tongues and every believer to be able to perform miracles. And that is just a direct contradiction to the Word of God. Now let's go back and look at the gifts as they're listed in 1 Corinthians 12, and then I want to look at the gifts that are listed in addition in Romans 12, and then we'll wrap up by looking at the purpose of the communication gifts given in Ephesians chapter 4. So let's work through the list. First of all, the first gift, and this is listed in terms of of priority because it is the most important gift. It is considered the first two gifts, in fact, are foundational gifts. According to Ephesians 2.20, apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church. Now, remember what I pointed out last time, that if you look at the whole body of Christ, I'm going to draw a circle here, the whole body of Christ, for it to be healthy, you have to have all the gifts present. But all these gifts only have to be present 
in the first century. Let's now I'm going to blow the illustration by drawing a rectangle down here. The foundation were the of uh, the foundation were the apostles and prophets. If all the gifts are given in the first century, then even if that gift is not given in the 20th century, because the body of Christ includes every believer from every generation, alive or dead, then 20th century believers benefit from gifts that were given only in the first century. But in order for that to be true, we would have to say that every gift would be given in the first century because if some gifts weren't given until the second or third century, then first century believers would have missed out. So all the gifts had to have been present in the early church, but it's not necessary for any gifts to be given after the first century for the body of Christ to benefit, however they are. I had a professor at Dallas Seminary who took the position that all the gifts vanished at the end of the first century. And he had a very interesting argument for that, but it's not, I don't think it holds water. You have a list of permanent gifts that continue throughout the church age for the benefit of the body of Christ in each generation. But some gifts were given in the first generation because they had a limited purpose, and part of that purpose was to establish the foundation of Bible doctrine, which is the basis for the Christian life, uh, specifically the mystery doctrine related to the spiritual life of the church age, and, it, it, and that was given by the apostles and prophets. But once their ministry ended with the closing of the canon of Scripture in approximately 95 A.D., those gifts were no longer needed, and they disappeared from church history. So the first gift is that of an apostle. Now, this was a leadership gift. It, is, it included many other gifts as well. Now, the term apostolos refers to someone who is commissioned with a particular task. This is the root idea. Someone who is commissioned with a particular task. Now, this implies that you have to know who does the commissioning, and then what the task is. And that's very important because the word uh, apostolos and the noun apostello are both used in everyday Everyday Greek, everyday language, you would talk, if you were talking about sending someone to the store or sending someone with a message to another city, you would use the verb apostello. It had a, uh, an everyday meaning. So you have to distinguish who does the commissioning or the sending and what the task was uh, for, that they were assigned the spiritual gift of apostolos is a gift that was given by the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ commissioning those, and that involved the 11 disciples after Judas was removed, the 11 original disciples plus one more, which is the Apostle Paul. Those are the apostles, and their task was 
given in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and that is to make learners or students of all nations, to take the gospel out to all the nations and to train others to be pastors, to be evangelists, and to begin to establish uh, various churches. So that gift was restricted to only 12. Now you say, well, there are some other passages in the Scriptures that seem to indicate that others were called apostles. For example, Barnabas is called an apostle in Acts 14.4. Silas and Timothy are referred to as apostles in 1 Thessalonians 2.6. Andronicus and Junius are mentioned as apostles in Romans 16.7. Epaphroditus is also mentioned as as a uh, as as a an apostle in Philippians chapter uh, two, and that is it's not clear in the English. English says messenger, but the Greek word is uh, apostolos. So we have to look at those situations, and there what we have in answering the question who we have a I'll put up here LC for local church. A local church, or perhaps Paul or another individual commissioned them to a task. So a local church commissioned them to a task, and it was a, some sort of limited ministry. For example, with Barnabas. Barnabas is commissioned by the church in Antioch of Syria in Acts 14.4 to take the gospel uh, along with the Apostle Paul. Uh, Silas and Timothy have also been commissioned by local churches to travel with the Apostle Paul and to take the gospel, as were the others. So these were not apostles in the sense of those who were the foundation of the church, but these are simply those who have been sent out as missionaries and evangelists by uh, local churches. Now, one point I need to make here is that missionary is not a spiritual gift. A missionary can involve any spiritual gift. Missionary is simply a person, as we studied in 3 John, a missionary is simply an individual who has been selected and set aside by a local church to take the gospel into a cross-cultural ministry or to teach in a cross-cultural situation. So it involves both evangelism and teaching. There can, because, of, uh, evan- uh, excuse me, because missionaries need all kinds of help in carrying out their work on the field, it can involve, you can be a missionary working in a support position where you're serving a missionary. You could be working as a secretary. You could be working in any kind of situation where you are there to help that person so that they are not distracted by the everyday worries and cares of life and can focus all their attention on learning the language, learning the culture, and being able to communicate the gospel into that culture. So missionary is not a spiritual gift. It is simply a function that may include any number of spiritual gifts. Now, apostles and prophets were also authenticated by signs and wonders and miracles according to 2 Corinthians 12.12. So that is also one reason why we say that those gifts were also temporary. Now, it's clear that an apostle was a temporary gift. It died out at the end of the first century. 
One other reason that we can say that apostle was a temporary gift is that you had to be directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ and a witness of the resurrected Lord. This is clear from Paul. This is why the Lord Jesus Christ appears physically to the apostle Paul. He's a witness of the resurrection. It is not someone who just has some vision of Jesus or some dream about Jesus. And so anyone today who claims to be an apostle is just biblically ignorant and completely out of line. An apostle also, I believe, possessed many, if not all, of the other spiritual gifts. That's difficult to prove, but if you look at what Paul did and what Peter did, they seem to possess numerous gifts. They, uh, In the scriptures, they revealed they had prophecy, so they had the gift of prophecy. They're revealing the word. They, uh, Peter and John healed the lame man in Acts chapter 4. Uh, Paul also uh, was involved in healing and performing miracles. So it appears that they possessed most of the other spiritual gifts, if not all of them. So the first spiritual gift is apostle, and it is a temporary gift and was restricted to only 12. But it's a spiritual gift. It was something given by God. It was not up to them. It was up to the Holy Spirit who gave them that gift at the instant of salvation. The second gift is prophecy. Prophecy. This is from the Greek word prophetos. So you can see it was simply transliterated into English. It's prophetos here, P-R-O-P-H-E-T-A-S. The, the prophet, actually it's a, it's a feminine with a, in, in the dictionary form, it is uh, prophetes. So we'll just correct that back to the dictionary form instead of the form it appears here in the sentence. Uh, prophet or prophecy, this had to do with foretelling. Actually, it has to do with the communication of a message from God. A prophetes or a prophet in the Old Testament functioned in two arenas. And we have to understand the difference. The first was an office. There was the office of prophet. And this had to do with the nation Israel as a theocratic nation with a covenant possessing a covenant from God, establishing them as a unique nation in all of human history. There is no other nation like Israel. They are the only nation that possesses a covenant with God. God called out Israel for a specific purpose and with a specific destiny, and no other nation in human history is comparable to Israel. And the a prophet in Israel was an office, and he is God's spokesperson. And if you go back to Deuteronomy, at the end of Deuteronomy, there's an outline of various blessings to the nation if they're obedient to God and cursings or judgments on the people if they are disobedient to that covenant. And when Israel was out of line and in disobedience, then the role of the prophet was to be God's spokesperson like a lawyer and would pr bring a lawsuit against the nation. And that Hebrew word was a reeve lawsuit, and it had to do with bringing a case 
against Israel in light of the Mosaic law and their disobedience of that law. So the prophet would press that lawsuit, and this involved being a spokesperson for God. His authority in Israel was based on his office as a prophet. But then secondarily, you had others who had the gift of prophecy in the Old Testament. Remember, it wasn't a spiritual gift, but it was a gift. And this would be someone such as Daniel. Daniel did not hold the office of prophet, but he clearly had the gift of prophecy. And this, too, involved being a spokesperson for God and communicating divine revelation. He didn't comment on the revelation. Now, sometimes a prophet, in terms of his office, did, and that was a secondary function. But Daniel simply communicated, this is what I saw in the dream, and the angel then explained it to me, and then this is the interpretation of that dream. And we went through Daniel extensively a couple of years ago. So the authority for the person exercising prophecy is in God, who is simply using the prophet as a spokesperson. The spokesperson is not interpreting the message. Now, this is very important to understand. The closest analogy I can give you is what happens when I go over into a, another country and I am teaching and I have a, a translator. When I go to Kiev, I use Jim Meyer's translator or several different translators, but usually I'm using uh, his main translator, who is a woman by the name of Margaret. Now, it's not Margaret's message. It's my message. It's not Margaret's job to interpret and to expand upon what I am saying. Although Margaret is a good translator. She's been translating for Jim and for others so often that you know, while translating, I'll, say, I'll make a comment, and then she'll say, now don't forget to tell them about this and this and this. They have questions about this and this and this. And she'll just say that under her breath, and that's always nice because of her experience and understanding of the culture. It's very helpful. But it's, she's not putting her own words into the message. See, she is simply taking what I'm saying. I'm the authority. I'm the one teaching the word, and she's translating. She's simply a spokesperson, a mouthpiece. There's no authority in her. The authority is in me. That's how you can get into the New Testament. And you have, on the one hand, women are forbidden to teach the word. But then you have, as we'll see, the example of of Philip's daughters who prophesied. See, prophecy wasn't considered an authoritative ministry because the authority wasn't inherent in the individual. We saw the same thing back in our study in 1 Corinthians uh, 11, where we talk about uh, a woman was not to pray or prophesy with her head uncovered. You see, the woman could prophesy because it's not an authoritative position. She's not explaining what the word means or how it's to be applied. The, so the gift of prophecy has to be understood in that sense. And, of course, it was a, a temporary gift. Now, when you get into the New Testament, and in the Old Testament, Deborah, who was a judge, also prophesied. When you get into the New Testament, there's no theocratic nation anymore. So the office of prophet is wiped out. But you, sti- but you are given, or the church is given, people who have the gift of prophecy. And that related to basically three functions. It had to do with <coughs> divine guidance in a specific situation. 
a warning of judgment or prediction of impending judgment or, or calamity. In some cases, it had a broader sense, such as the prophecy of revelation given to the Apostle John at the conclusion of the New Testament. You had examples of prophecy in, in the New Testament with Agabus in Acts 11, 27 to 28, and in 21, 10 through 11, where he announces a particular uh, calamity that's about to uh, come about. Others who are said to prophesy include Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Menaean, and even Paul, according to Acts 13, 1. And when the passage, again, when it talks about the four daughters of Philip, the evangelists, are said to be prophesying, that is not a problem in relationship to, to the teaching ministry for women. And it leads to the next gift, number three, teacher. Now, this is the Greek word didaskalos, which is where we get our English word didactic. Didaskalos, D-I-D-A-S-K-A-L-O-S. And there's a, two different gifts that we'll look at. There's the gift of teacher, and there is the gift of pastor-teacher. Now, the reason we have the gift, we talk about pastor-teacher, and we hyphenate that term is because of the construction in the Greek. And we'll look at that when we get to Ephesians 4. But there's a list of gifts there, and the Greek gives, goes through and has the article and then the noun. Article, noun. Article, noun. And that has to do with the apostle, then the prophet, then the evangelist, and then you have article, noun, conjunction, chi, and then noun. Now, you see there's a break there. There's a difference. You don't have an article in front of that last noun. And these last two nouns are pastor and teacher. And this is a construction or figure of speech called the hendiadis, where these two nouns are joined together, and the second noun is, is seen as modifying or gi giving greater specificity to the first noun. And so they should be linked together as pastor-teacher, not just pastor. There's no such thing as somebody who's a pastor that's not a teacher. Now, we have screwed up churches in this country who have pastors who do all kinds of things other than teaching. But, see, the, the spiritual gift is pastor-teacher. Because the way in which he exercises his leadership, and pastor emphasizes leadership role, he exercises that through teaching. But that's different from someone who has the gift of teaching. Uh, somebody who has the gift of teaching could be a seminary professor. They can teach in a Bible institute. They could teach at a Christian camp. They can teach in prep school, Sunday school. They could teach on the mission field. They have an ability to teach the Word of God, but they do not necessarily have that gift that involves leadership of a local congregation, the gift of pastor-teacher. And when I was in seminary, I sat under many men who had tremendous teaching ability, and they were tremendous scholars, but they were not the kind of men that would pastor a church, and they knew that, and they weren't at all interested in pastoring a church. But they had a tremendous gift of teaching. 
so we can distinguish between teaching and the gift of pastor-teacher. Then the fourth gift that's mentioned here is the gift of miracles. This was a temporary gift. Now, the gift of teacher is a permanent gift. Gift of, pa- of apostle was temporary. Gift of prophecy was temporary. The gift of teacher is permanent. The gift of miracles is a temporary gift. It was given for authentication. This was sort of the calling card of the the calling card of the apostles and of some of the disciples, some of the other leaders in the church. For example, Philip performed some miracles. It got people's attentions so that they could then give them the gospel and explain the scripture to them. So miracles were a temporary gift given for authentication. For example, First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians twelve twelve. Second Corinthians twelve twelve, which talks about signs and wonders and miracles. Uh, were given, and these were the signs of an apostle. Then the fifth gift gift that's mentioned here is the gift of healing, the gift of healing. And one example of that is given in Acts 19, 11, and 12, when the apostle Paul, they just wanted to touch one of his handkerchiefs, and they would be healed. And the gift of healing functioned in a powerful way in the New Testament. Not everyone was, was healed healed. In fact, in Acts 4, I mean, excuse me, Luke 4, we don't have time to go look at the situation when Jesus first reads from the uh, scroll of Isaiah to the synagogue of of Nazareth. Part of what comes out of that interchange is that that he's emphasizing the fact that not everyone uh, is healed because they, they didn't have faith. And so Jesus didn't come to heal everybody. The apostles didn't come to heal everybody. They healed some people. It was restricted because it had a purpose, and that was to authenticate their overall message and ministry. Jesus' healings were designed to demonstrate his qualification as the, as the Messiah. Towards the end of the church age, there were cases that, where there were those who were ill that could not be healed by Paul. For example, Epaphroditus in Philippians 2.27 and Trophimus in 2 Timothy 4.20 were not healed by Paul. Timothy wasn't healed. Paul tells Timothy, you've got stomach trouble, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. If those gifts were still operational and to be normative in the church, then Paul's advice would be, well, Timothy, go find somebody with the gift of healing and he'll take care of that stomach trouble. But that wasn't the case, so that there was a purpose in the gift, and it wasn't to alleviate human suffering. It was to provide authentication to the messenger. Then the, that, and that gift is temporary. It is no longer in operation. It operated only in the first century. Now, and some people say, well, what do you do with all these healings that take place? Well, I don't know enough about the circumstances to make an evaluation, and neither do you, and neither does anybody else. Uh, People get sick with all kinds of different diseases, and then somebody comes along and gives them a sugar pill, uh, a placebo, and they get healed. In in test cases where you go to uh, uh, the drug companies and they're doing uh, uh, double-blind tests on uh, on patients to see if the, the drugs have any positive benefit or if they really work, and they have to have something in the order of uh, an excess of a 45, 50% uh, cure rate because a certain number of people, if you give them a, a sugar pill, they will demonstrate some kind of recovery. So you, it's the power of the mind over the body. 
So you have all kinds of dynamics going on when people go to healing services, and you have all kinds of healers in all kinds of religious settings. So we have the gift of healing as a fifth gift. The sixth gift is the gift of helps. And this is the Greek verb antilimpses, antilimpses from the word antilambano. So anti. Limpses, A-N-T-I-L-E-M-P-S-I-S. Antilimpses, E-I-S, S-E-I-S, that's how it ends. From antilambano, which means to grasp, to assist, and this is the gift or capacity of giving aid or assistance and the performance of various tasks or responsibilities. So this gift is rather broad. It depends on on the situation. Some can help in one way. Some can help in another way. It depends on your own natural abilities, talents, and personality, training, background. So it's a rather broad category of gift. Paul used the word in his address to the Ephesian pastors in Acts 20, verse 35, uh, in terms of helping the weak. So it, it's applied to helping the sick in some areas and helping those who perhaps are shut-ins, those who are not able to get out, would be one application of the gift of helps. The seventh gift that's mentioned is the gift of of administrations. The gift of administration, the Greek word is kuberneses. Uh, Kubernetes. K-U-B-E-R-N-E-S-E-I-S. Kubernetes. And that has to do it's, uh, with, with uh, someone who guides or leads or directs something. In Acts 27.1, it's used to refer to the pilot of a ship. King James Version translated this with the word governments. It's the idea of leadership. And this is a kind of gift you look for among deacons for the guidance and direction of the local church, someone who is able to organize and administer the activities of a local church. And this idea of administration is not necessarily the same as the administration that you have in business. You can go off the... uh, Harvard Business School or Wharton School of Business and get a degree and get a, you know, get your MBA and be a great administrator in a business, but that doesn't mean you have the spiritual gift of administration. And administration of a local church is vastly different from administration of a business. The church may, in some of its operations, be similar to a secular business, but a church is a ministry operating on the on the uh, on the uh, principle of grace and generosity to people. It's not a business. A business exists to make money and to make a profit and to show a profit, but a church exists as a ministry in order to provide for the needs of the congregation, in order to support the local ministry of the pulpit, and to support missionaries. The goal of the local church is not to accumulate massive amounts of property and 
money except towards the meeting the goal of teaching the word and evangelism. It's not a business. And too often, I and other pastors have gotten together, and we always run into a certain problem when you get certain kinds of men who may be who may excel in business outside the church. And I, I've personally, I've seen this, with, with, especially with people who are who are in some kind of sales, and sometimes with men who are in entrepreneurial positions. They want to take all those principles of running a business and just bring them into the church. We need to set up a, a goals. We need to set up objectives, measurable, verifiable goals, and all these other things. And that's fine, and it has its place somewhere, but not necessarily in the local church because the principles for running and governing a ministry operate on the rules of Scripture and not on the rules of business. But as I said, it's, you don't, you don't, that doesn't mean you get sloppy. That doesn't mean you're irresponsible with your money. That doesn't mean that you don't follow some uh, similar principles. It just means you have to understand that there is a categorical difference between a church and a secular business. And just because you're a great administrator of a secular business does not mean you have a clue how to administer a local church. So the gift of administration is the seventh gift. The eighth gift listed here is the gift of interpretation or is the gift of tongues, varieties of tongues. And it has to do with different kinds of languages. And that is a subject we will get into more in the next chapter, but it's limited. Now, in Romans 12, there's another list of gifts, and I, and, and most of those we've looked at already. It has the gift of prophecy. Then we have the gift of service, which is the word uh, diakonian, which is similar to helps. And uh, and that category, as we saw in our passage in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Romans 12 also talks about uh, teaching. So you have that gift. It talks about exhortation. That's a gift that's not listed here. It's the gift of exhortation, and that has the idea of emboldening somebody or encouraging them to a specific course of action. Sometimes it means to comfort. And this is a gift that operates on a personal level. It's not a communication gift. It operates on a personal level uh, as, as you encourage somebody or comfort them with doctrine in a particular, particularly difficult situation or circumstance in life. Then in uh, Romans 12, you also have uh, mentioned the gift of giving, the gift of giving. And it's the word meta deduce, and it has the idea of giving, and it states in giving with generosity. Romans 12 gives uh, little hints as to how certain gifts should function. For example, uh, the gift of ministry, uh, it should be used in ministering. The one who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality or generosity, so the gift of giving operates in terms of generosity, and giving should always operate in terms of generosity. And then uh, the next is the one who leads. This is a different word from the one we have in 1 Corinthians 12. It is the Greek word prahistemi. Prahistemi. P-R-O-I-S-T-E-M-I. 
And the gift, praistemi, means to preside over, to be set over, to rule, uh, to superintend, and it has the idea of exercising leadership. It's different from kubernesis, which is, which is administration. This is, again, a leadership uh, gift that would be operational on a board of deacons. They are able to lead and direct the congregation. And that is important. The deacons are set up to serve the pastor, but to lead the congregation. And then in Romans 12, uh, verse 8, the last one listed, he who shows mercy, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And here the word mercy from uh, Eliao means to show compassion, mercy. It's directed to those who are ill or suffering. This is the kind of person you want going to hospitals, going to, to people who are going through physical problems. This is someone who exercises mercy and compassion, but based on doctrine. And then just to wrap up, just give it, I'm just giving this a cursory look in summary. Ephesians chapter 4, the four gifts are listed, apostles and prophets, those are temporary, evangelist and pastor-teacher are the only two gifts listed in Ephesians 4.11 that are still extant, still operational. Their purpose is given in verse 12. They're, they are given, and their ultimate purpose is given, expressed, or the intermediate purpose actually is expressed, first of all, by a pros preposition in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, katartismos. It means to uh, equip, to prepare for the work of ministry, we're to be involved in serving one another. All the gifts, whatever, uh, all the believers, whatever your spiritual gift is, is based on being equipped through a teaching ministry. So pastor and teacher and evangelist are to equip the saints. And then you have two more, cl- another clause for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's the uh, That's the ultimate purpose for the maturing of the body of Christ until we all come to the unity of doctrine and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity. So maturity comes through the exercise of the gifts of evangelist and pastor-teacher. That is the goal of those two gifts, and we will be studying those and have studied those in more detail. But I just wanted to go through and give in one message a brief summary of each one of the gifts and their definition. The next time we'll come back and begin 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where we have an expansion of this and what should undergird the exercise of all the gifts. Because the last verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is actually the first verse of the next subject, Earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And so what Paul is going to show in verse 13 is where the real emphasis should be. It's not on the gifts. It's on spiritual maturity as exemplified by demonstrating impersonal love for all mankind, which, of course, is what Jesus said, that it is through love for one another that people will know that we are truly his disciples with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the study of your word this morning. We pray that you would help us to understand these things, to be challenged, to perhaps be able to understand our own spiritual gift, but above that, to realize we have a responsibility of service to one another in the body of Christ, even in areas where we may not be gifted. 
Father, we pray for anyone here this morning that may be unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nevertheless, God in His love has provided a perfect solution, a grace-based solution that is not based on anything that you or I do, but is based exclusively on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. There on the cross, He paid the penalty for every single sin in human history. He paid the penalty for every one of your sins so that your sin is no longer the issue. The issue is what do you think about Jesus Christ? All you have to do is put your faith alone, your trust, your reliance exclusively on Jesus Christ, and you will have eternal salvation. Right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny simply by what you choose. It's up to you. It's not anybody else's decision. It's not anybody else's business. What matters is your decision right now. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.